Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, fighting has certainly intensified in certain hotspots in the east of Ukraine, but so far it's been hard to see a definite shape emerging from all this activity, and we are learning of really significant losses on the Russian side. We'll be sifting through the reports to try and get an idea of the direction the war is going in. We'll also be talking to a remarkable woman, that's uh, Melania Podolyak, who works for an equally remarkable organisation, the Sergei Pritula Charity Foundation, which delivers not only humanitarian aid to Ukrainian civilians, but military kit and hardware, including drones, to Ukrainian soldiers. OK, let's cut to it, all. I've been searching for signs on the Russian side of the sort of preparations you might expect to see in advance of the big offensive operation that we've been hearing about so much in the last weeks. But so far, I can't really see anything that looks like events are taking a markedly different turn. What are you seeing? Well, not a lot, to be truthful, Patrick. Um, as I mentioned at the top, we can see attacks ongoing right across the front, a uh, little bit of ground being gained by uh, Russia in various locations. They're talking about some significant gains, as they put it. That's coming from Russian sources in Luhansk uh, this morning. But in reality, uh, these are pinpricks, frankly, compared to the huge gains made by Ukraine later in the year in 2022. So uh, what's going on? Well, attacks in 11 locations in Donetsk and Luhansk, as I said. Also, and this might be significant, reports of a Russian buildup of fighter jets and attack helicopters in the border areas. Is that an indication of a big attack is underway? We don't know. And yet, on the other hand, huge losses have been taken by the Russians in recent weeks. The British MOD says that in the last fortnight, uh, Russians have suffered the heaviest rate of casualties since the start of the war. And that very much backs up the information we're getting from Ukrainian sources, the official MOD sources in Kiev that says that the Russians are losing up to eight or 900 killed a day. Uh, you know, it's an astonishing uh, rate of losses. Well, a lot of the action seems to have been around a place called Vuladar, which is a small mining town. Its significance is that it's slightly elevated. It looks down on a plain and through that plain runs a railway line that connects Donetsk and Crimea. So it's got significant strategic value. Huge efforts have been made by the Russians uh, involving Spetsnaz, Special Forces troops, and Marines, elite, so-called elite units of Marines, to try and take it so far without success. In the process, they've taken horrendous casualties. There's an amazing video of um, tanks just sort of manoeuvring around sort of fairly pointlessly and suddenly erupting in flames and smoke as they hit, presumably by drone-guided munitions, also driving straight into minefields, apparently kind of completely unaware that they're there. Now, I think the story, which is the Ukrainians are pumping up, they're, they're saying that the, the brigade has actually been more or less destroyed. And this is the second or even third time this has happened. It was involved initially in the attack on Kiev and got very badly battered there. And now here they are again, and pretty well being wiped out. Now, the Russians themselves uh, are reporting a bit on this. Uh, people are making reports from the battlefield. One says something very interesting to me. This is described as an elite unit, but according to someone who spoke to an independent uh, news organization in Russia, 80% of the troops are actually mobniks. They're mobilized troops, so they're untrained, re relatively untrained. And this explains the huge displays of incompetence we're seeing. So when we see these so-called elite units go into action, they're not really elite at all. That They've basically been patched together and filled up with people who really don't know what they're doing. So if they're being used at this stage of the war, it does beg the question of, you know, what have they actually got in reserve? They may have numbers, but what are the skill sets of these people that, that are waiting to go into the line? Well, I'm definitely moving to the view, Patrick, that there is going to be no mass offensive by the Russians because they simply don't have that capability. So, yes, this could be the offensive. They're, they're trying to move in multiple different locations for what purpose? Well, I think Putin's war aims now, the revised war aims are relatively clear. He wants to get his hands on those four territories that they've all already proclaimed as part of Russia. And he will then try and sell that to the Russian public as a victory. In other words, the offensive, such as it is, is going to take place in the east of the country. I doubt very much there'll be an assault on Kiev. Of course, the Russians 
want the Ukrainians to think that that might take place because then they will keep some of their best troops, uh, you know, looking over the border at Belarus and other parts of that sort of location in Ukraine uh, and away from the heart of the fighting. But if you think about it, the one way that Putin can get out of this mess at the moment is to try and recover certainly all of the Donbass, but also possibly those other territories too. I don't think it's going to happen, but that seems to be what he's trying to do. Now, there has been trouble at home as a result of all this. There are still voices that are raised against what's going on in Ukraine. And uh, in the last few days, we've heard from someone who's been a persistent critic of Putin, that's Colonel General Leonid Ivashov. He's old school. He's 79 years old. He was a stalwart of the old Red Army. And he's the chairman of something called the All Russia Officers Assembly. I don't know what that is, but it kind of, in my mind, sort of raises an image of a sort of Moscow equivalent of the in and out the uh, Naval and Military Club in London, with lots of retired old Soviet generals sitting around in leather armchairs, sipping Georgian brandy and saying that the country is going to the dogs under this scoundrel Putin. Um, he's actually a serious critic. Like I said, he was a vocal critic at the outset. And he then predicted disaster when the war began. He's popped up again, basically to say, I told you so but saying that it's actually much worse than he feared. He's saying it's total military incompetence. But beyond that, total diplomatic isolation. He said, I wrote then that we would become a pariah state, but I didn't think we would not have a single serious ally. Now, that clearly includes China. He feels they've lost China. Indeed, he says there's now a kind of new world order, a bipolar world order, which has been created by the US and China and in which Russia has no part. And beyond that, he says this war's actually saved NATO. It's now actually expanding in a way that it wouldn't have done if it hadn't been for the invasion. And also unified the West. He says there was no collective West before. There were lots of contradictions. But today we're creating a collective West uh, with our own hands. And that seems to me to be a pretty good analysis. And this is coming from someone who's, you know, proud, patriotic Russian, not from a dissident and at the root of it, he says, is, is really this military incompetence, which goes back to the way that Putin has hollowed out the state and, and replaced competent professionals with his own uh, KGB slash FSB cronies. Uh, and of course, the general is one of the victims of this. He was sacked by Putin 20 odd years ago, I think. I think that's very significant, Patrick. He's, he sounds like he's got a bit of an axe to grind, but nevertheless, he's speaking out and saying basically the reality of what's gone on. And he's not the only one. Uh, another significant comment came this week from a character called Gennady Gutkov. Now, he's a former KGB colonel and an ex-Russian MP who lives in exile, so he can speak a bit more openly. But what he says also is pretty hard-hitting. Putin can't rule the Kremlin like before. Uh, he has made lots of stupid mistakes, and everyone from the general staff of the armed forces to the leadership of the FSB to his close aides understands this. Officials are becoming bolder and brasher, and infighting has escalated. There is no longer the subordination to Putin that there was a year ago, said Gudkov. And he cited conversations with relatives of Kremlin insiders, aides to political figures in Moscow, and unnamed Russian tycoons. And here's the significant bit, Patrick. This is a quiet rebellion against him. So we've been speculating about, is there a move against Putin? It sounds like there might at least be a quiet rebellion. Yes, and I suppose it will be triggered by events on the battlefield, which make the outcome of this intensification all the more significant. Down to nuts and bolts, there's a NATO meeting going on in Brussels now. I think it's um, about details, the details of how to get this aid that has already been promised to the Ukrainians in short order. And the Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg is dampening down talk of fighter jets and extending the range of kit that's getting to them. Uh, he did say something which is pretty worrying to the Ukrainians, that they're running out of ammunition. They will, of course, know them the, that themselves. But Stoltenberg is saying, well, you know, do we actually have the capacity to keep up with the rate of ammunition expenditure that's going on on the Ukrainian side? I think the figure that's being bandied around is that they're firing off 6,000 shells a day against the Russians, 20,000 a day. Uh, the Russians, of course, don't have as sophisticated munitions as Ukrainians do, but they have a hell of a lot more of it. So that is a real issue. He says it's a, basically a, a logistical race that both sides are in now. So that's something we've got to keep an eye on. 
Yeah, and actually, another interesting statement made by uh, Mark Milley, who, of course, General Mark Milley, who, of course, is chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they are concerned about ammunition. They are determined to get as much kit to the Ukrainians as quickly as possible. But he said, uh, you know, quite a categorical statement, and, and it was this, Russia has lost the war in Ukraine strategically operationally and tactically. Russian President Vladimir Putin was wrong in thinking he could defeat Ukraine, Milley said, adding, Ukraine remains free. They remain independent. NATO in this coalition has never been stronger. So that's sort of supporting the point that Ivashov made, which is that actually this has benefited the West. Okay, well, that's enough from us. Uh, On with the interview. Melania Podolyak is a young Ukrainian woman working for the Sergei Pritula Foundation. Now, this started off as a humanitarian aid organization, but like so much of Ukrainian society, it's been transformed by the war and it's now a military supply resource as well. We spoke to Melania in Ukraine, and this is what she told us. Melania, welcome to the podcast. We're very, very honored to have you talking to us. I think we're going to start off just with a general situation. If you can tell us what your organization does and broadly what the picture is of the way people live day to day in Ukraine at the moment. We've kind of lost sight of it here in the UK. We know all about the the huge number of displaced people, a huge number of refugees who've left. Can you tell us how people are coping at the moment? Um, Thank you for having me. Um, I work at the organization called Serhi Pratula Foundation. It was founded in 2019, and it was supposed to be a charity that was dedicated to uh, typical humanitarian causes like education, inclusivity, other things like that. Uh, then COVID struck, so the charity uh, was kind of switched a bit to working uh, with local hospitals. And charity's founder, Serhi Pratula, he has been a like a volunteer since 2014, but his charity d- did not do that, so he just did it on his own. But uh, on the 24th of February, obviously, everything changed. And so uh, the foundation switched to um, supplying first just military aid to our armed forces and then later on expanded into humanitarian aid as well. Currently, we're the second largest war-related charity in Ukraine. Uh, in the past 11 months, we've accumulated more than 3.8 billion hryvnias in aid total. And about 70% of our activities have to do with military. So we were uh, mostly known for buying all sorts of drones. Uh, we've purchased, actually received as a gift, uh, three Bayraktars from Baikar after making this like very big, you know, sort of like fundraising for a while. Uh, we've also purchased a satellite for our intelligence services that they're currently using. So that has been our main area of concern and also humanitarian aid later on when we, you know, got our heads a little bit above the water and we started building temporary housing for people from the deoccupied territories, these modular homes. Uh, we're currently supplying people with these food packages, again, in the Kherson region, in Mykolaiv region especially. And so, yeah, that has been our, our main areas of concern as for now. When we're talking about the daily lives, obviously that's kind of divided into two. So we have the civilian population, which is struggling, obviously. There has been as you've said before, a lot of displaced people that are currently trying to settle in either uh, in the west and center of Ukraine or uh, moving abroad. Uh, not Some of them are coming back, not all of them, and we're, we will have problems and issues with that in the future. But people are trying their best. The situation is critical in a sense when you compare it to the peaceful times. But uh, in, in terms of the situation we found ourselves in now, I mean, it's I guess, natural. People are helping each other. So it's it's not great, but we're holding on. And as to the military side of it, um, our troops and whatnot, well, the situation is not dire. The morale is pretty high. However, there are serious concerns uh, related to lack of ammunition. I mean, there are basically most of them uh, most of our units are supplied efficiently with food, with, you know, uh, personal items and whatnot. But our founder and director of our foundation have been traveling to the battlefront last week or so. And I think what they brought back with them uh, was this kind of uh, feeling, you know, not of hopelessness, but 
military personnel is concerned with the lack of certain ammunition. So that's been the largest issue for now. Just to go back to what your initial statements about the military aid you gave, can you tell us a little bit in a little bit more detail how that actually works? How do you go about purchasing a drone and getting it to your people in the, in the areas they need it? Well, it, it's a large chain. Our foundation has like a, I think at this point, a, around to 150 employees and volunteers who help it. But we do have a procurement division that is concerned with finding and purchasing drones in large quantities because our foundation mostly works with the military on the battalion brigade level. So we don't just donate it to smaller uh, units because that would be impossible. We work with commanders of battalions and figure out their needs. And so the, for instance, uh, the pr- procurement department will purchase, I don't know, 246 thermal vision goggles. You can actually see that on our Facebook. It was purchased, it arrived like maybe three days ago. And then they will get checked and then they will get this special um, like engraving on it that says that it's a military aid and it's not for sale or purchase. And then it will be sorted and supplied depending on the needs of units we have a special department dedicating, dedicated to checking and, and talking to military commanders so as to, you know, make sure it's fair and evenly distributed to those who actually need it. It's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and a lot of people, but our uh, members of, of our charity, our workers, it's not, it's personally, it's my first time like working in a military charity. I haven't done that since 2014, like my colleagues have, but they have a very good experience in knowing what kind of, you know, vehicles, what kind of equipment soldiers need. So so they talk to the commanders directly and check and then distribute it evenly, as evenly as they can, obviously. And this presumably is done in conjunction with the government. So you're basically a kind of civilian support uh, supply chain working in harmony with the with the actual Ministry of Defence. Where is the money coming from then? Who, who are your biggest donors our biggest donors are Ukrainians, Ukrainian business especially, but we get all sorts of donations from Ukraine, ranging from millions to 10 hryvnias a day. Uh, but also we do get a lot of help from uh, from businesses and people from abroad, especially when we talk about uh, our humanitarian wing of our foundation. Uh, usually we don't work with government uh, funds yet, or I don't know <laughs> if that's even in the plans, but mostly those are private donations. And the way Ukrainian, big Ukrainian military charities work is that you either, you do have some donations on a regular basis that come in daily, but also some, from time to time, we will announce something that is called like a mega fundraiser where we will give, you know, a number of items that we want to purchase and what those items are. So, for instance, kamikaze drones or Bayraktars or anything. And then we will set a deadline. And usually we, we are able to um, fundraise that amount in two to three days. Well, that was all very interesting. And it has to be said, quite surprising. Join us after the break for more from Melania and our responses to all your questions. Welcome back. Well, Saul went on to ask Melania how Ukrainians felt about the West's piecemeal approach to supplying Ukrainians with the military aid that they've been begging for and wondered whether people were angry at the slow rate of delivery. Melania, can I ask you a broader question about Western military aid? I saw an interview you gave a fair while ago in which you quite understandably implored the West to give Ukraine all the weapons it needed to defend itself. We've been saying pretty much the same thing on the podcast for some time now. Uh, but of course, the reality is they've been drip feeding weapons, usually on the using the argument that we need to be wary about provoking Russia. Has this provoked or has this caused both anger and disappointment in Ukraine? I mean, clearly, Western aid has helped. But should there have been more and earlier? Yes, there has been continuous outrage by Ukrainian members of Ukrainian civic society, especially. And that is understandable since 
uh, people keep referring to, even though there are certain discussions, whether that is actually, you know, even a document that should be referred to. But people do keep coming back to Budapest Memorandum and people keep coming back to the fact that not a lot of people talk about this, but Ukraine back in the 90s, we did not only give up our nuclear arsenal, we also gave up a large portion of our aviation arsenal and a lot of weapons overall. So in exchange for these things, we were given certain guarantees. But to put that aside, all kinds of, you know, papers or, or whatnot, Ukraine has had this understanding that if we apply ourselves and do the things we and the West and Europe has agreed on in 2014 and 15, that, you know, we would get support and protection. We're obviously very, very grateful for the things we're receiving now and the aid and the military aid that reaches Ukrainian battlefield. It's ridiculously helpful. It has changed a lot. I mean, we've seen that in Kherson especially, but also, I mean, you've seen the way the front line moves. But nevertheless, this could have all been over sooner if we had as much as we needed from the very beginning. It's not easy battling a force that has such numbers, and especially given the constant uh, air raids and, and cruise missiles. So I kind of feel that this tactic that the West has decided to use with Ukraine is, you know, to give the patient as much medicine as it takes for him not to die but not enough to overcome an illness because of this, you know, pre-existing notion that somehow that could provoke Russia. Well, that was said before, you know, uh, before, for instance, Ukraine was supplied with HIMARS. A lot of Western, uh, you know, experts were saying that this would provoke Russia into, you know, something grander and nothing happened. I just have this feeling that at the end of the day, we're going to get everything we have requested and even more. It's just the problem is the longer we wait, the more people we lose daily. The losses are, I'm not, you know, I'm not my government. I'm allowed to, you know, be as realistic as I can. The losses are very big on Ukrainian side as well as Russian. You know, I'm not the kind of person who, you know, I love to celebrate Russian losses, obviously, as a Ukrainian. But I have to be realistic about these things. The longer it takes for the West to supply us with the things we require more Ukrainian people will die. As a very dear friend of mine who currently serves in Donetsk Oblast in the military, he says, it would be very nice if by the time we get those tanks, we still had people who can actually drive them. That is very important. Now, in the immediate future, Melanie, you must be very concerned about all this talk of a big Russian offensive. Have you actually got plans in place for dealing with that? Huh. Uh, I have to be honest with you, before the 24th of February, I was what you would call a war denier. Uh, not in a sense that I didn't think it would happen, I just didn't expect it to be on this scale. Uh, so I did not have any plans back then. If we're talking about the current situation, now at least I know what to do uh, in case everything goes down. But the thing is that I'm most likely going to stay put uh, because... I'm all for people that need to and want to leave. I support that, actually. I'm not the one to, you know, tell them to stay at home. But I can be of help, at, I, I, and I will remain here for as long as it's needed. So even though I do have certain plans, you know, put on paper, um, as for now, there's, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that I will actually need to use any of them. I do have a very strong belief still in Ukrainian armed forces. They have shown ridiculously good results. And even if I, I hate making these kinds of predictions because I'm not a military expert, but it just common sense tells me that if they were to actually start the second offensive, we would suffer heavy losses, but their losses would be immensely bigger even than before, because even though our military suffered losses, but we are, you know, a different kind of army now anyway. So I don't doubt that I won't have to go anywhere. But does the organization, has it made plans uh, for you know, massive disruption uh, as a result of this anticipated offensive? Well, as of now, the overall strategy of our foundation, as I am aware of it, is that we are currently, we have one up the tempo of procuring and delivering. So now it takes a day to deliver any sort of equipment from Kyiv to, let's say, I don't know, any part of Donetsk Oblast that is reachable by our volunteers. So all I know for now is that we're making these extreme plans to kind of 
in case everything, first of all, to supply as many units as we can with as much as we can now in faster pay, in a faster pace. But also they're looking into making, you know, uh, difficult logistical routes and plans in, in case something changes. But overall, the um, kind of feeling and the, the prognoses are very positive. So I don't think the foundation has any plans to, you know, evacuate in case something happens. I don't think that's that's on paper. The latest round of military support coming from uh, America includes a weapon that we think might be a bit of a game changer, just as HIMARS was six months or more ago. And that's these ground and air launch precision bombs uh, that have a much further range than HIMARS. And this allows the Ukrainian armed forces to dislocate the Russians, just as HIMARS did, but uh, deeper into the interior. And apparently these weapons can be used not only in all of Ukraine's main uh, territory, but also big chunks of Crimea as well. Do you believe, is there a feeling in Ukraine that, yes, this is going to make a crucial difference before a potential Russian counteroffensive? So the major reason why Ukraine has been requesting the, you know, especially the high precision weapons, it's not, uh, I mean, people like to talk about how far these weapons can reach and entertaining this idea that, you know, uh, actually some military installments in Russia are currently a legitimate military target for Ukrainian military so as to disrupt, you know, logistics and whatnot. But actually the real reason that Ukraine demands uh, high precision weaponry is because Ukraine is very aware of the civilian population, unlike Russians. So I think it's not about, um, you know, Crimea being a valid target, even though we like to entertain these ideas and those are very important, but most people are very realistic. And I think especially in the Ministry of Defense and in the office of the president, they know for a fact that we are, we still have other goals to achieve before moving forward and deeper into, uh, you know, certain areas like Crimea, even though we know of the work our military, they can neither confirm nor deny, but we know of some disturbances on the peninsula. But it's mostly about being very precise at what we're targeting because, I mean, abiding by international law is very important for Ukrainian information policy and military policy as well. That's what diff- makes us different from Russia and from Russian regime. So it's l- mostly about that. And also, you know, having better equipment lets you not waste ammo, which is, I want to say, you know, scarce, but in reality, we don't have as many resources as Russians do. So I think it's more about being more precise, more professional and more effective than, you know, being able to strike something very far, even though, again, Ukrainians do love that narrative. And I know for a fact that these, you know, striking uh, um, fuel bases and whatnot is helpful because that way, you know, we do break up some supply chains. But yeah, I think it's mostly about being as accurate as possible. Yeah, it's fascinating. We, we've actually never heard that argument on the program before, when mainly because we're concentrating so much, Melanie, on the on the military aspects. But it's really interesting to hear that, of course, uh, you know, you've got this double effect, really. You're reducing civilian casualties at the same time. Final question about the future. Um, terrible, terrible war crimes. We're hearing them more of them every day. We've spoken to people in detail about this. There has to be some reckoning at some point, doesn't there? You know, in some senses, it's not just the criminals themselves, but the, you know, the, the enablers. Uh, we've seen this before in history. What's your sort of feeling, your, your sort of gut instinct about what needs to be done, uh, or, or at least the, the price that needs to be paid by some of these perpetrators? Um, even though I'm relatively young, I was not born yesterday, and I have read a lot of history books. And I'm sad to say that usually, I mean, people who have suffered at the hands of people like Russians now, they rarely get, you know, uh, justice. And even if they get it, it's not to an extent that they wish or to an extent that would be fair. There is, however, in my opinion, a better uh, remedy to the situation, you know, when the war ends and ensuring justice. A lot of people talk about the, you know, regime change in Russia. And a lot of people think about changing Russian, you know, possibly turning it into a democracy and things like that, and then prosecution and Hague and whatnot, which all sounds very 
nice, but I, in my mind, is unattainable. And I wish they would pay all the reparations and contributions, and I wish they would give out their war criminals to, you know, and we could try them in court. I do not think, however, that will ever happen. So the only thing that is viable, in my opinion, is when it's all over, just making sure that Russia is physically unable to do anything like this ever again. Can I ask you a question, Melanie, about the minimum terms that Ukraine uh, will accept for peace? And I ask that question because we've been, uh, you know, obviously hearing a lot officially from the Ukrainian government. But what we'd like to know is whether the Ukrainian government is at one with the Ukrainian people on this. Uh, and what is, you know, in the sense that any country when it's been fighting, and as you have for almost a year, you might imagine some kind of war weariness would creep in. Are those two uh, crucial bits of Ukraine, the government and the people on the same page of the minimum terms they will accept? And what are they? Uh, as of now, in my opinion, like I'm 99% sure that our government's position on these things is aligned with the Ukrainian public. And that is both because I think, I honestly think that's what they believe in their heart of hearts. And that's what actually makes sense politically for them. But also, they are there to, you know, uh, exert the will of the people. So um, even though we have martial law now, and basically most, some of our constitutional rights have been, uh, you know, temporarily on hold, but still, they have to take into account what people think. And I have seen some numbers uh, on some polling, and they are risking uh, losing a lot of support if they don't follow up on the on the position they have been, uh, you know, very vocal about for the past months. Obviously, it might seem kind of unrealistic, um, and I fear that there may be some rhetoric change from our Western partners if and when actually when Ukraine reaches the pre twenty fourth of February borders. So I expect there to be some sort of discussion about this. Uh, and that would set a very dangerous precedent. And I really fear uh, these conversations because uh, it'll just show yet again that Russia can't do anything they want and, you know, they will not suffer any consequences. And I know that for some European politicians, a matter of Donbass, uh, occupied parts of Donbass are open to discussion, whereas Crimea is not. In their minds, it's already Russian territory that Ukraine has to come to terms with. However, I don't think that on any level, on any time, any Ukrainian government will be, you know, able to accept that. Um, so we'll see. But for now, too much blood has been shed, actually, I think, for anybody to change their opinion on that. Well, there was some interesting stuff in there, wasn't there, Patrick? Um, you know, that point about civilians funding arms procurement uh, is just another sign, I think, after Ollie Lambert's interview with us last week, that this really is a people's war. Uh, it shows, doesn't it, the adaptability of Ukrainian society. Melania is also echoing uh, what Jen Stoltenberg's been saying about this uh, lack of ammunition. So obviously, that's a concern that filters right through into civilian society. And she's echoing, again, what we've heard from so many Ukrainians about their support for Zelensky's uh, maximalist approach to negotiations, that the Russians have to clear out of everywhere before they consider the job to be done. Uh, that's obviously going to be a huge uh, political consideration for Zelensky, but also for the West. You know, we have been so vocal in our support of Ukraine if we then start saying, okay, it doesn't really work for us anymore, this this view, I think we're going to get a lot of um, diplomatic fissures developing in the months to come. If this latest sort of round of fighting doesn't produce some kind of definite change of direction in Ukraine's favor, I think the thing that we've spoken about before, the possibility of that Western solidarity beginning to fracture may start to become a reality as the as the year wears on. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. The Americans seem to be aware of this because they have been talking this week about absolutely the need to not give any concessions to the Russians. Otherwise, they will, and Putin will be able to paint this as a victory, as, we, as we've been talking all along. She mentioned a couple of other interesting uh, points, I thought, Patrick. I mean, this use of long-range precision weapons, of course, is is, is very useful for the Ukrainians because uh, it's much more effective, frankly. You're not just firing off ammunition willy-nilly as the Russians are, but also it saves lives. It saves civilian lives. And after all, they are Ukrainian lives that they're targeting 
targeting, generally speaking, you know, when these weapons are being used. So that's an important point. And she she said, we, we need to distinguish ourselves in this fight from the Russians. And that is an important message, of course, the Ukrainians need to get over. The depth of, let's be honest, hatred that Ukrainians now feel for Russians is pretty clear from that interview, isn't it? She says she loves to celebrate Russian losses. Now, that sounds a bit shocking to us, but I can completely Mm -hmm. understand it. But beneath that, I think you've got this, again, a real problem going forward. There can be no friendship that I can conceive between the two nations uh, for generations to come. And this is reflected in something that we ought to talk about in a future program, which is the de-Russification program uh, that is going on uh, in Ukraine. It's been going on for some years now, but it's things like, you know, removing all signs of Russian culture from Ukrainian culture, renaming street names that have Russian names, taking Russian books out of libraries and recycling them, taking down statues of great Russian figures like Pushkin and Catherine the Great, etc. Of course, this is only doing what the Russians did to the Ukrainians back in the day Mm -hmm. during the reign of the Tsars. Uh, But it is sort of depressing to think that this is just a continuation of this cycle. And it's another blow to the idea that there's any such thing as progress in the underpinnings of this conflict. But let's not lose sight of who's right and who's wrong in in this great struggle. And uh, Melania, a very admirable woman, she tweeted something which I found rather moving the other day, just a, a couple of lines, what's going on in her mind at the moment. And she said, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. I think there must be a lot of Ukrainians who've got that thought ticking away in the back of their mind day in, day out. Okay, well, let's go on to uh, the questions we've received this week. Big haul again. Uh, There's one here from Mike, and his question is, obviously, Ukraine could not do a preemptive strike on the Russian forces at the start of the war a year ago, but with Russia telegraphing the likelihood of a possible offensive taking place shortly, is it feasible or possible that Ukraine could have the intelligence and suitable forces to launch a preemptive strike on any planned Russian offensive this time? What do you think, Saul? Yes, I, I think that is absolutely the case. I mean, if, if we follow on from the feeling we're increasingly getting that uh, Russia has already launched its offensive in these multiple locations, you can bet your bottom dollar that Ukraine is planning a response. The question is, where is it going to be and how effective is it going to be? Well, we've speculated that Ukraine needs to get hold of the tanks uh, and some of the other weaponry it's been promised, the armoured personnel vehicles too. You know, in armoured warfare, if the tanks are going to be moving forward, you need infantry close uh, beside them. They now, or at least will, have the capacity to do that. So I think we're looking at a counter-strike by the Ukrainians sometime in March, possibly April, when they built up their armoured forces. Anything else uh, sort of surprising before then, I think unlikely, but you never know. Uh, And of course, there. You know, we also said, well, they would be looking forward to a big Russian attack because they could then uh, knock out its long lines of advance, just like they did at the beginning of the of the campaign. I suspect the Russians either don't have the capability or know that their supply system simply uh, would break down under those circumstances. So that's quite comforting in one sense for the Ukrainians. But nevertheless, a lot of people are dying uh, while all this is going on. Now, moving on to the next question, Patrick, this is an interesting one because it actually comes from our producer, James's old university lecturer, a guy called Bart Browers, uh, and he teaches journalism and media studies at the University of Groningen in Holland. Uh, and first of all, he says, thanks uh, for your superb weekly updates. Uh, he particularly liked hearing from Julius Strauss. So his question is, what's going on behind the scenes, seeing the buildup of forces on the Russian side? What do we know about the Ukrainian side? You know, he's making the point that is it in the Ukrainians' interest to just wait and see what the Russians are going to do? Or should they, given the danger of war fatigue among voters in the West, actually try and take the initiative? Well, my feeling is they should try and take the initiative, but where and how? Well, he speculated they might even attack Russia next. I don't think that's that likely, Patrick. Is it an attack on Russia? But an attack somewhere, yes, we think is likely. What, what, what's your feeling? Well, I think we're both uh, sitting in our armchairs here. So <laughs> I think we're both in agreement on what we would do if we were commanding the Ukrainian 
forces, which is to let them come on. Uh, Hopefully, they will actually go for an old Soviet-style deep battle approach where they'll come punching through. You allow them to come through, and you basically wait till they've run out of steam when their supply lines are extended. We all know the difficulties they have with logistics and the sort of level of incompetence that they operate in, and then use their definite superiority in high-tech skills and their motivation to then come in behind them, uh, cut them off, and, you know, typical classic encirclement battle and annihilate them or take them prisoner. I mean, that, that's, that's the way I would be thinking. But it, it, it sort of depends on the Russians actually playing along with your plan and concentrating their forces in one old-style deep battle-type manoeuvre. Yeah, my, my feeling is they're inching forward in, in the east of Ukraine in the hope, as I've already said, of, of basically getting control of enough territory so that they can claim a victory. I doubt very much they're going to risk a, a, an all-out attack for the very reasons you've just been explaining, Patrick. Right, let's move on. There's a very interesting one here from Alan uh, in Belfast, who says, I'm a pilot instructor at a major European airline. So I understand some of the problems of aviation training, logistics and operations. And basically, he he goes on to say that, look, you know, to send fighter jets to Ukraine is going to cost enormous amounts of money. They are very vulnerable because of the uh, counter battery fire that the uh, Russians have got. Uh, It's going to take a long time to get them up and running uh, in terms of training for pilots, logistical support package, well-defended airfields, etc., But on the other hand, he asks, why on earth aren't we supporting uh, the small drones uh, because they're having the really meaningful impact on the battlefield rather than, as he puts it, highly specialized F-16 pilots? The general tech-savvy young Ukrainian soldier is an effective drone operator much sooner while also being at less risk and easier to replace if lost. I mean, he goes on to say that surely the whole point of this is that the drones is where we should be, uh, you know, putting our major effort. And, And it's absolutely true isn't it, Patrick? We both watched uh, the excellent film uh, last week. And and we realise, of course, that just, you know, these guys don't need much training to be very effective at using drones. So is that the point, you know, that that fighter jets are a bit of a red herring here? I think Alan's absolutely right about that. Several people who have specialised knowledge have made the same point. You know, these are like Formula One racing cars, incredibly sensitive uh, even just things like the runway, the quality of the runway has to be very, very clean, very, very well maintained in order to operate them. So, you know, why would you put all your eggs in these very costly baskets? And so, yeah, I think that that is the way to go. And as we've seen, you know, the Ukrainians obviously understand that what we were hearing from Melania about getting Bayaktar drones and things like that, that's where, mm-hmm. where they see value for money. And uh, yeah, so I think that's that's absolutely what, what they should be doing. Uh, now, I've got a very... Interesting one here, very technical one from Simon Jimson, who, uh, again, has got a bit of specialist knowledge. I'd be interested to hear how Ukraine are maintaining their tank and artillery barrels. As a graduate of Div 1 of the Army Staff course, he says he's showing his age here, I recall learning about the complex manufacturing of barrels, etc. Given the rate of fire, I would expect the artillery is either wearing out or becoming inaccurate or there's a lot more support being provided by Western arms companies. Well, tank barrels, yeah, they do need replacing uh, after about 200 rounds, which is not actually that many. The artillery barrels can survive a lot longer. Several thousand rounds can be fired before they need replacing. But actually replacing uh, tank barrels is not actually such a big deal. Uh, You can do it in like an hour even right up in the forward area. Uh, all you need is is the artificers who are actually skilled enough to do it. This really comes back to a, a question of logistics. It's whether you've actually got the tank barrels and you've got the men in place to actually replace them. Just on those tank guns, the, uh, the Abrams, uh, which is on its way to Ukraine from the US, is a smoothbore gun, which they tend to last longer. There's less wear and tear on them. Uh, the Challenger two is a rifle gun, uh, which tends to wear out quicker, I believe. That's because the British Army still prefer using these uh, high-explosive squash-head rounds, hesh rounds. So, you know, another disparity there uh, between the actual, uh, not the quality of the kit, but just the actual uh, the specifications of the kit, which is obviously going to be a complicating factor when they do arrive in theatre. You've obviously been doing your homework, Patrick. Um, that, that's good information. I have indeed. Yeah, I do. Well, it's, it is one of those things that you suddenly realise you don't really know know the answer to that. So you do actually have to start doing a bit of work. 
Yeah, it reminds me of the debate in the 19th century when the uh, British Army, of course, like everyone else, were, were using smoothbores. And although they had the technology for rifle rifle barrels, and, and that had really been available from the end of the 18th century, the big question was, how quickly could you load these rifle barrels? Everyone knew that they were more accurate. And, it, and it's interesting to hear the debate still ongoing in the 21st century that actually smoothbore still has some advantages. Uh, you mentioned it with the Abrams. Okay, let's move on to, uh, and this is a really interesting one from Helen in Lincolnshire. Uh, And she says, having just heard today's edition, that's of course last week's, which again contained references to the extraordinary involvement of Ukrainian civilians in the war effort, I was reminded of a concern I've harbored since the outbreak of the war a year ago when we first heard of weapons training and arming of civilians. It worried me then that this would in effect muddy the divide between professional soldier and civilian, thereby making everybody in Ukraine into a potentially lethally armed enemy combat as far as the Russian soldiers were concerned. Now, Helen goes on to say, well, of course, the danger of this is that it, in some ways it might justify or might be used as an excuse for some of the, you know, the atrocities that are being committed in Butcher. I mean, what's your feeling about this, Patrick? She's got a point, hasn't she, that there is a danger that, you know, particularly with the sort of partisan uh, work that's going on behind the lines we know about. I think we need to distinguish, actually, in my, you know, wh- wh- while, while we're talking about this, between civilians who've gone into the armed forces, which is really what Ollie was talking about in, in his film, and civilians operating as partisans, very, very different. And I don't think there's any justification in the slightest for any any of the uh, monstrous behavior at Butcher, where it really was murder, rape, and the appropriation of kits. But there is a point here that there is a danger if you get a whole nation under arms, it will encourage maybe some of those Russians who wouldn't have committed atrocities before to jump in and do that. Although I suspect uh, not many of them need that much provocation. Yeah, thanks very much for that, Helen. Helen says self-deprecatingly that she's a 70-year-old textile artist and grandmother has and has absolutely no knowledge of military matters. But this is a very good question, a very fundamental question about the nature of warfare. And it's as old as warfare itself, Saul, isn't it? I mean, you go back to you know classical times, uh, the first thing an army does when it gets in the field is it starts pillaging in order to keep itself going. And the justification for that is that even though you might be starving the local population, uh, you're actually taking food away from the enemy. So it's a sort of you know strategically justified jump forward to the Second World War. When we started the strategic bombing campaign against Germany, we elaborated all sorts of moral arguments for why bombing a city in the full knowledge that it's going to kill hundreds, if not thousands of civilians was because a lot of those civilians would be working in arms factories. So you go over and bomb Essen where the Krupps works are, you kill lots of Krupps workers and that stops them making steel, which is going to be turned into artillery, tanks, etc. And that was, uh, everyone nodded their heads and said, yes, yes, that's, I think that's okay. And, um, you know, clearly if you stand back and look at it now, it looks pretty horrendous. But uh, there are, people can always find ways of justifying uh, why uh, civilian lives have been lost. And I think the Russians will have no difficulty at all. Uh, in saying, you know, basically everyone in Ukraine is a is a soldier of some description, even though they might not be wearing a uniform, um, even if they, it does actually occur to them to ask themselves that question. Okay, here's one from Andrew in Singapore. I'm curious, uh, he writes, what you think about Russian surveillance capabilities and what we can deduce about their spy satellite network and whether it even works, given the apparent inability to pinpoint Ukrainian targets for their artillery. Maybe they launched empty boxes into space to fool us. Shouldn't finding and identifying large equipment like artillery and tanks to target has been much easier in winter with the leaves falling from the trees? And yet, we don't seem to be hearing of Ukraine losing all that much equipment. It seems NATO spy satellites and surveillance is again in a completely different league to Russian capabilities. Um, have we, he asks, and here's the question, uh, been guilty of believing their hype? Uh, and is the truth that the Russians are substantially less capable than we'd all expected them to be? I think the answer is yes on that. But don't forget for a minute that Ukraine has the the capacity from NATO spy satellites and surveillance, as, as Andrew points out, which is an astonishing capability uh, and clearly better than anything the 
Russians have got. They seem to be getting this information almost in real time. This is not a military secret. It's pretty much been acknowledged now that the West is giving them all the intelligence capability that it has. And this is making a real difference, not just in targeting, uh, but in warning of a potential attack. And getting back to the, the possibility of a big Russian offensive, if there was one planned anywhere, the American spy satellites would know about it because, of course, they would have to move vast numbers of vehicles, tanks and everything else to be in position for an attack. And that clearly is something that the Ukrainians would be able to uh, respond to. So the fears of a big Russian counterattack, big Russian offensive, I suspect are not causing sleepless nights in Ukraine at the moment because they know they'll be forewarned. Okay, well, I think that's enough from us for now. Uh, Just an update on the podcast itself. We're getting some really good news about numbers. Uh, We were number one in the history podcast chart of Spotify a couple of days ago, and we were delighted to see there are 26, is it, uh, who are actually listening in from Russia, most of them from (laughs) Moscow. What do you make of that sort? Who do you think our Russian listeners are? Well, we think they must be FSB, XKGB, uh, keeping an eye on us. Uh, we haven't had too much trolling, actually, interesting enough, Patrick. You, you very sensibly don't operate on social media. I do. And I haven't had too much stick. I mean, I've had a little bit from, you know, the, the hard left who are sympathetic towards Russia. I've had to block a couple of people. But no, generally speaking, we haven't had much trolling. I mean, maybe they haven't noticed us yet. But now we're number one in history podcasts, or at least were briefly. That might make a difference. But, you know, no, a broader point to make to everyone listening is thank you so much. Keep spreading the word. Um, it's tremendously important, Patrick and I feel, that we don't lose sight of what's going on in Ukraine for all the reasons we've given. Uh, we are going to keep an eye on things for the foreseeable future. And it's a worthwhile process, both for us and hopefully for you to listen to us. So keep sending your questions through to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. Well, Saul, I'd like to think that our listeners there in Russia are not FSB spooks, but uh, ordinary citizens who want to find out what's happening beyond this wall of disinformation that Putin has constructed around around the country. So if that is the case, uh, a warm welcome to the podcast. Keep on listening. Same goes for everyone else. Next week, of course, is a big landmark. It's one year after the invasion. Do join us then for more analysis, reporting, and another great interview. Goodbye. Goodbye.